Father, we come before you this morning, a people uh, with many concerns. And Lord, uh, our eyes are often on ourselves and on the things of this world. We are burdened with cares and anxieties, and Father, we need your help. Uh, Father, not just to bear our burdens with us, which you promised to do, but Father, to remind us of this truth to turn our eyes from ourselves, to turn our eyes from the cares of this world, and to turn our eyes to Christ. Father, would you pour out on us a spirit of grace and of supplication as we look on him whom we have pierced. Father, would you lead us to a place in our hearts of humility and contrition and trembling before your word. Father, the sacrifices in which you delight our broken and contrite heart. Would you give us that heart as we behold your glory in your word? And Father, as we learn of the response that you require of and supply to your church on the basis of the glories that are ours in Christ, would you help us now send your spirit to attend the preaching of your word for your glory and for our joy, we ask in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be back in this pulpit to you this morning, and I'm eager to bring this text to you from the rest of Ephesians chapter 1. Before we get started, however, I want to say thank you to all of you for your outpouring of love and support uh, in the past week, along with some tears. It seems that uh, you're willing to not follow Randy's admonition that all tears be saved until December 11th, and we've been crying with you. It's, It's hard to countenance leaving, even as we see uh, the providence of the Lord, including in the outpouring of love and support uh, and coming alongside us that we've experienced this past week. Uh, As we take steps in faith towards new and what seems like relatively uncertain circumstances for our family with our upcoming move, your love and support and prayers for us have already been such an encouragement and a reminder of the Lord's constant faithfulness. So again, thank you. The thought, that thought, of the Lord's faithfulness to Calvary, and specifically to our family through you all, seems like an appropriate place to begin as we approach our text for this morning. Many of you were here with us several weeks ago when we honored Pastor Dan and Chris for their 28 years of ministry at Calvary. Something that I think we didn't talk much about that evening, but I think we did allude to it, is that things at Calvary did not look quite the way they do now when Pastor Dan showed up back in 1994 to serve alongside Pastor Jim. Back then, Calvary Bible Church, and actually when Dan and Chris came, it was still for a few weeks, I think, Calvary Presbyterian Independent back then. Uh, And back then, this was in some ways barely even something that could be called a church. I've heard Pastor Dan say more than once that it was really more like a country club, that people gathered here more for social and traditional and religious reasons, and not as a body of believers who wanted more than anything to come under God's word together to proclaim the excellencies of Christ as a body. And so, what a kindness of the Lord, is it not, that from what it was then, the Lord has preserved and grown Calvary to be what it is today. And I know that for most of you, it's just like it is for me and my family that the only Calvary you know is the only Calvary I know, a body of committed believers who are striving hard after Christ together. And so when I was last in this pulpit and we considered together what I called the breathtaking glories of Calvary Bible Church from the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1, I know that that resonated with a lot of you. 
you know, and you know this by experience, as I do, you know that what the Lord has done here at Calvary is something special. You even know that it's glorious, like we saw from that first part of Ephesians 1. Now, what we need to see today is what we're supposed to do with that knowledge. There is no point for not in knowledge for the sake of knowledge, right? We all know this, don't we? This is not something that's hard to understand or to agree with. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, that I could know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if without love, if all my knowledge makes no difference in the way I live, then I am nothing, Paul says. So this is an easily established biblical truth. Knowledge for its own sake, knowledge for the sake of knowledge is worthless. And the fact is, the world knows this is true also. Listen to this quote. This comes from an opinion columnist in the Guardian newspaper based on research from Yale University. I don't think the research was probably necessary. He writes this, if in some ways I don't practice what I preach, and he's talking about kind of a secular gospel of environmentalism and other secular concerns. He says, in some ways, if I don't practice what I preach, at least I'm preaching, right? And isn't that better than nothing? Well, no. Both research and experience tell us it's worse than nothing. We dislike hypocrites more than people who are straightforwardly awful. Research, he goes on to explain, indicates that we hate receiving signals, the knowledge and the identity claims of others. We hate those when they lead us to think that there's something that they're not. When that happens, people feel like they're being deceived and they don't like it. This is true of everyone. And again, this is just common sense, right? Which one of you wants to find out that your financial planner, the person that you thought you could trust for advice about your financial future, would you want to find out that that person in the midst of their own personal bankruptcy? Who wants to go to a marriage therapist who's in the midst of a messy divorce? Who wants to go under the knife of a doctor who has never completed a successful surgery? We know, and so does the world, we know that people who claim to be one thing and are in fact another, we know that's a bad thing. And we know, don't we, that this is an issue for the church. Of course, it's not always deserved, but too often, the church does deserve the common accusation that the church is full of hypocrites. This is nothing new. Jesus actually warned the church at Ephesus, the same church to, to whom Paul writes this letter. In Revelation chapter 2, he warns them, saying, you claimed, at first, you claimed something at first, and you showed a compelling love, but you've lost the love you had at first. That was true of the church at Ephesus by the time John wrote the book of Revelation. And so Jesus warns them there in Revelation 2 that if they won't repent, he'll remove their lampstand and they won't be a church anymore. It's not a good thing, especially for the church, when we're obviously not what we claim to be. And that brings us to our sermon title for this morning. The church is glorious, so what? In our previous sermon from Ephesians 1, we saw, as I said, the breathtaking glories of Calvary Bible Church. We saw the truth about who and what we are in Christ. What we need to know next is where does that knowledge, where does that theological reality need to take us? Well, this week in the next verses, verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1, Paul answers that so what question for us. Theology, and that includes our knowledge of who and what we are as a church, God expects that our knowledge, our theology, is always moving us somewhere. And that is the case here, of course. 
we will see from Paul's example and from what he includes in his response how the knowledge of the church's glory should move us. We are going to see the so what of this. And so I want to ask you, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and please, if you're able, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and dominion and power, and above everything, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Again, what we find in these nine verses is Paul's answer to our so what question. The church, Calvary Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas, is glorious. So what? Paul tells us here, and he does so, as you see on your outline, in two points. The knowledge of the glory of the church should lead us to two responses, or you might say two action items. Number one, it should give, lead us to give thanks. And secondly, it should lead us to prayerfully pursue growth in Christ. So we start with number one, and this comes from verse 15 in the first half of verse 16. The knowledge of the church's glory should lead us first to thankfulness. Now I want you to see right off the bat that this is the first response Paul has to the glories he has unfolded here. And so, by implication, thankfulness is the first response we should have when we grasp the glories of the church. I want to ask you to flip just a few pages to the left for a moment to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, Paul is explaining why it is that God is right to turn some people over to their sin. Look at what he says about them, verse 21 of Romans 1. Look at what he lists as the one, key character, one of the key characteristics of an unbeliever. He writes, For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. Brothers and sisters, it is the mark of an unbeliever to be ungrateful. Paul is explaining in Romans 1 that everyone knows there is a God, and so because they have this common knowledge of God that he exists, that he's powerful, and that he has wrath against sin, therefore, Paul says, everyone is accountable. 
And one of the key sins for which they are accountable is that although they know God in this way, they don't thank Him. Now, this is true of all of us, naturally. Naturally, we feel entitled to our lives. We feel naturally entitled to our next breath. But, Scripture says, and this is the testimony of the whole Bible, we are not entitled to these things. We have them by grace. And so, the proper response should be to give thanks for them. Now, turning back to Ephesians 1, I want to point out a prerequisite to the kind of giving of thanks that Paul is modeling in our verses in Ephesians 1. Paul alludes to this back in verse 13 where he says this, In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. In verse 12, he had also already included himself in that category when he said, we who first have hoped in Christ. Those are equated here. To believe is to hope in Christ, and to hope in Christ is to believe. Now, the point is this, that those who have believed, those who have hoped in Christ, we are, and this is modeled by Paul here, we are doubly grateful. Not only do we thank God for our earthly existence and for every breath, the kinds of things that naturally we take for granted, we thank God that we know Him in another way as well. We thank God that we know and that we have believed in His salvation. We thank God that we know the glories of the church and that we, each of us individually, that we get to be a part of the outworking of God's salvation to the church, which Paul has already put on display in these first 14 verses. Now, looking at verse 15, I want to point you to Paul's immediate reason he gives for his thankfulness to God. That first three words, he says, for this reason, that points back to those first 14 verses. But then he says this, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Paul gives thanks for this specifically, that the local church at Ephesus is believing in Jesus and working out their faith as they love each other. Now, I have two points of application for you from this. First, I want to encourage you. Even as Paul thanks God for the Ephesians, I thank God for you. As a body, Calvary Bible Church has been through a lot in the past few years. Like for everyone, COVID was a challenge for us. And the Lord was so gracious to preserve our unity and even to begin to grow this church, both in numbers and I think even spiritually in that season. And then in August of 2020, we sent away our second church plant, Christ Fellowship. And then, of course, these recent months have brought enormous upheaval in terms of leadership changes. And do you know what I've seen as a result of this in this body? I've seen a faithful response. And this is true not just of those who have been here a long time. You know, Rod uh, crunched the numbers recently, and half of the people here at Calvary have come since the beginning of 2020, half. And what I would say about those of you whom the Lord has added to our number, and some of you are new believers in that time frame, and some of you have known the Lord for a long time, but what I thank God for with all of you is the evident heart that wants to love and come under the Lord in His Word. And so for all of you, I thank God. But there are also then the long-termers. I think especially of you men who have been constant fixtures in ISI, men's Bible study, since before I came 12 years ago. So many of you have sown and watered 
in my own life. And your lives have been examples to me and to my family of what it looks like to serve and follow Christ. And so again, for all of you, I thank God. And I want you to be encouraged by this. Be encouraged by the fact that who and what you are is an occasion for the thanksgiving of others, just as it was for Paul when he considered the church at Ephesus. As I get to see and as you get to see and others get to see your faith in Christ and your love for the saints, God is glorified as this leads to thanksgiving in our hearts. So I hope you're encouraged by that. Secondly, I hope this leads you to thanksgiving. Beloved, you don't want to be ungrateful. Again, that is a mark not of belief, but of unbelief. If we believe, if you believe, the church really is as glorious as what we understood from the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1, and if you have had the privilege of seeing that glory put on display in this body, you should be thankful. Now, to get this to sink in a little more, I want to ask you, what is usually the disposition of your heart? Have you ever asked someone how they are and had them reply, better than I deserve? Everything this side of hell is grace. I'm always doing better than I deserve, and that's true for each and every one of us, even the unbelievers among us. Now, I'm not in the habit of responding that way myself to that question. Perhaps I should be, and I'll just use myself as an example here, that I too often fail to maintain that disposition in my heart. I too often fail to show the evidence that I know that I'm doing better than I should be. I'll be driving and hit a bunch of red lights in a row. I'll stay up late to finish one task just to wake up the next morning to an even bigger pile of work. I crave a few minutes of quiet, and many of you can identify with this. All that happens in the house is a bunch of noisy kids having fun. <laughs> and what is my response? Honestly, my response is too often not one of thankfulness. My first response, and this is sort of the Bible's prototype of the opposite of thankfulness, my first response is often a grumbling and a complaining spirit. A spirit that says, I should be getting my way. That I somehow deserve better than this. I even find myself thinking something along these lines. I'm trying to do this work for you, Lord. Couldn't you help it go a little bit more smoothly? Now, I don't know if that resonates with you, but maybe it does. And if it does, maybe you're wondering, well, what can I do about it? Well, I'm glad that you asked. And in answer, I want to point us back to a detail in verse 16. Paul says that he does not cease giving thanks for the Ephesians. Now, of course, you can point out, and you would be right, that Paul is exaggerating. He's using hyperbole. It's not every moment of every day. He does sleep, so it's not every moment of every day that he's giving thanks. But he's using hyperbole for a reason. Paul is so much in the habit of giving thanks that he can honestly say that, in a sense at least, he does it constantly, that he gives thanks without ceasing. And so I want us to think, how can we move towards following Paul's example of always being thankful? I have two suggestions for you. First, get in the habit of reminding yourself to be thankful. This can take many forms. Are you in the habit of doing a personal quiet time, a dedicated time each day to read your Bible and pray? Well, make thanksgiving a part of that dedicated quiet time. And of course, if you're reading your Bible in that time, chances are high that Scripture is going to give you some reminders as you read of the things that you can thank God for. In addition to that, you might consider asking someone else to periodically ask you what you're thankful for. 
If you're married, see if you can agree with your spouse to ask each other before you eat dinner and do this with your kids too. Ask yourself what you find yourself thankful for that day. Of course, there's no end to the ways you could do this. Set yourself a digital reminder, put a sticky note on your dash. Or here's a good one, try to catch yourself in that situation with the red lights or with the big to-do list or with the interruptions. Try to catch yourself complaining and remind yourself in those moments to be thankful instead. That's the first suggestion. Get in the habit of reminding yourself to be thankful. Secondly, be thankful for specific things. Paul gives us an example here as well. I'm thankful, Paul says, for the glory of this local church. And I'm thankful even more specifically for the ways in which I see you believing the truth about Christ and the ways in which I see you loving each other. And of course, the specific things we can thank God for can be multiplied as well. I'm thankful for the members of my family that I get to see and spend time with today. I'm thankful I have a job that allows me to provide for my family. I'm thankful for the cooler temperatures that come with it being late fall, and we do have to wait until November to get some comfort in Texas. (laughs) We can slip easily into complaining even there. Or, when things are not going so well from a worldly perspective, I'm thankful for this painful trial. As Randy read earlier from Romans 5, this trial even is designed to produce perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, which doesn't disappoint because of the love of God that's been poured out in our hearts. And so I'm thankful, even for my trials, I'm thankful. Psalm 46 says, even if the mountain feels like it's being cast into the heart of the sea, what is my fortress? God is my fortress. He doesn't change even when everything around me seems to change. There's always a reason, even in the midst of the most intense seasons of life, for us to be thankful. And so we need to be thankful in specific ways. This is Paul's first answer to our so what question. The church is glorious, so what? First, Paul says, be thankful. And be thankful specifically for a church that believes God and loves each other. See these truths, see them around you, and believe that this is what God is doing and be thankful. And be thankful often so that your life is characterized by a habitual thankfulness. Be thankful specifically so that you are remembering and being led. And this is what's happening again to Paul in these verses. He is remembering and being led to gratitude and to worship of God because of his goodness in specific ways through this church. Secondly, in response to the breathtaking glory of the church, Paul would have us prayerfully pursue growth in Christ. As you can see, this second point comprises a much larger section of text all the way through the end of the chapter. So we're going to break it down into two parts. The first part, and we see this in the first part of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians here, he prays that they would know God. And look at the specific wording. He says, verse 16, I make mention of you in my prayers, and what does he pray for first? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him. Now, it's that last bit that I'm highlighting with this subpoint. Paul wants the Ephesians, and therefore he wants us to have the full knowledge of God. That is what needs to come first. Oftentimes, we're quick to want to see practical change. We know, as I talked about earlier, we know that it's a problem that we aren't walking as we should. 
we know it's a problem that our relationships aren't what they should be. We might have this nagging sense that we should get going on something of a sanctification checklist, that we should start finding practical ways to check those boxes so that we won't fit the stereotype of those who claim to know Christ but look like the world. And let me just say, that is a good impulse. We should have the desire to grow in measurable, practical ways. And that's something we're going to get to in more detail in a moment. But there's a reason Paul puts something else first in this prayer for the Ephesians. Beloved, this is the first thing we need. It's the first thing the Ephesians needed, and it's the first thing you need if you're going to be all those things you're supposed to be as the Lord's church. You need to know Him Now, let me point out the way this is worded in the version I'm reading from, the Legacy Standard Bible. Paul prays for the full knowledge of him. The full knowledge of him. The word used here has a meaning that is more than a bare knowledge, and you're probably familiar with the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. This word simply adds an epi to the front of that, intensifying it, epigenosis. This word implies that you not only know him, but that you recognize him. And Paul wants us to have this full knowledge of God. He wants us to recognize him. It says, God the Father as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is what you need to know above all else and before anything else. There is nothing else worth knowing if you do not know God as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another way of saying this is it's not enough that you know there's a God. It's not even enough that you know there's a powerful God who is angry with sin, as we read about in Romans 1. There's enough information available to the whole world that anyone can know this, and we're all accountable to know it from what God has revealed about himself generally. But for us in the Bible, God has revealed himself as the Father of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is himself God and who, in our place, died the death we deserve so that we not only can know that God is, but as the Hebrews writer says, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You see, people naturally, even the demons, James says, they perceive God. If they're honest, and you've heard the saying, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. If they're honest, people admit that they believe there's a God. However, If all we know about God is what we can perceive of him from creation, then it makes sense that we would suppress this truth, which is what we do naturally. It makes sense that rather than seeking him, rather than drawing near to him as he's revealed himself to be, we would instead hide from him or even try to distract ourselves with the creation and pretend that he doesn't exist. It makes sense that like Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, we would shrink back from God because we know naturally by our conscience he's given us that we're guilty. We would shrink back from him rather than drawing close to him. However, in Christ, we can recognize God. We can know him fully as one to whom we can draw near. Because he is, as Paul says here, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of this, we do not need to shrink back from him. Jesus has taken our sin and given us his righteousness so that we can instead draw near boldly by faith. This recognition of God, this full knowledge of him, is something we need to have revealed to us, which is why Paul asks 
that it would be given to us as a spirit of wisdom and revelation, verse 17. Where Paul asks for that spirit of wisdom and of revelation, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit who opens up to us God's special revelation in his word. He is a spirit of revelation and of wisdom who reveals to us the truth about God, this truth that I've been highlighting, of God as the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he does this so that we would know him fully, so that we would recognize him as he is, so that we would draw near to him. Again, this is the place we must start. If you are going to say and think and do all the things the church should, that must start with this. You must know and recognize God the way he has revealed himself supremely in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his son, which is a revelation and a wisdom that is sealed to our hearts by God's spirit through his word. So that is the first part of Paul's prayer and of my prayer for you and for myself, that we would grow in our knowledge of God such that we would know him fully as the father of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. The second part of Paul's prayer we find in verses 18 to 23. Now this, and if you recall, I mentioned of the earlier verses in this chapter, represents probably the longest sentence in the Bible. This kind of gives that a run for its money in terms of Paul's ability to run on breathlessly with a string of words. These, word, these verses represent what is, again, for Paul, a very long sentence. But we can distill these final six verses of Ephesians 1 into a brief summary. Here Paul prays that the church at Ephesus would know, in an experiential way, God's salvation. Now another way to think of these verses is that this is basically Paul's summary of the book of Ephesians. And this is his summary prayer that the book of Ephesians would be effective in the purpose for which God was giving it to the church through Paul. We find this starting in verse 18 with Paul's next indicator that he is answering our so what question. He says, so that. So that what? So that, he says, you would know. Now, once again, we shouldn't think of this as being like a bare knowledge of facts. Uh, this is that Greek word gnosis again, but without any prefix to it. Uh, and as you may know, that word can often indicate like a knowledge that is had by experience or an intimate knowledge, like the intimacy enjoyed between a husband and wife. That word gnosis, to know one's wife, is used in that way. So we can tell from context that Paul has in mind an experiential knowledge. Now to see this, it's kind of necessary to zoom out a little bit and take a look at where Paul is going with all this. Paul goes on to write in verse 19 that he wants us to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wants us to know this by experience. He wants us to know, verse 20, that this is the same power that was at work in Christ when he was raised from the dead and then seated in the heavenly places. Now just think for a moment, that power, that power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places, do you think that's a small power or a great power? It's a great power. And here, if we zoom out to get a little bit more of Paul's big picture in Ephesians, we can see why Paul prays for us to grasp this, why it's necessary for us to know God experientially according to his great power. In chapter 2, Paul will explain, our natural state is one of being dead. 
And if that's the case, it's important that the kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead is able to make us alive also. In chapter 3, Paul says, it's God's plan for the church to glorify God by putting on display the wisdom of God to the whole world. And not just to the world, but even to the supernatural beings who rule the heavenly places, Ephesians 3, verse 10. And then Paul hits us, chapter 4, verse 1, with this. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That, if you hadn't sensed it already, is enormous in its scope. Over the course of three more chapters, Paul details what seem like the impossible features of this calling. The one who is given to stealing and selfishness must become generous. Whoever has a habit of lying is to become a truth teller. The man given to fits of rage is to become a gracious man who speaks gently. The one who is prone to resentment and bitterness is to become forgiving. How in the world can this happen? First, as Paul prayed to begin with, we must recognize God as he is. We must know him fully. Now we find we must know his salvation experientially, starting with understanding his power to accomplish this salvation. As we saw in the earlier verses of chapter 1, this is a reality that is grounded in God's own unchanging will. This is here again in verse 18, the hope of his calling. These riches, what Paul wants for us, these realities he has described in the first 14 verses and now is praying we would experience, these are a matter, he says, of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This again, beloved, means that we become God's precious possession. Here's a good way of thinking of it. That God the Father, and we get this from Jesus' priestly prayer in John 17, that God the Father gives, to the, gives the church to Jesus as his inheritance. And he doesn't want to give Jesus a gift that is anything less than gloriously constructed and refined and presented. And we don't have to go that far, actually, to see this play out. Take a quick glance over to chapter 5 of Ephesians. Paul says this in verse 25 of chapter 5, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We, the church, we are his possession, his inheritance. Back in chapter 1, in verses 21 and 22, we read of the glory and the power and authority of Christ by which it is given to him to sanctify his church, which, verse 23 says, is his body. As Paul writes later in Ephesians chapter 5 again, verse 29, it is just common sense for one to love his own body, to nourish and cherish it, which Paul says is exactly what Christ does for his church. And by the way, I could have made another point of application here, leading to the praise of the glory of God in this. Not just thankfulness, but as Paul recounts the authority and glory and power of Christ to accomplish this, that by itself, that's not his main point. He's praying here, but it is a word of praise. So our hearts should be led to worship as well. 
This is the second part of Paul's prayer, and it's my prayer for you and for me, for all of us as well. I pray that we would not only recognize and draw near to God, I pray that as we do, we would know experientially this great salvation that is ours in Christ as it unfolds in us by his power. Now, the question we should ask at this point is how can we seek to have Paul's prayer for the church answered in us? How can we work to make sure that our theology is going somewhere, that we don't just have knowledge for the sake of knowledge? Well, in addition to cultivating a heart of thanksgiving, and that was our application earlier, I have two further action steps for you. First, you need to look at him and you need to see him as he really is. Although I've said this already, I want to say it again, and I want to say it maybe in a little bit of a different way. When you think of God right now, how do you think of him? Perhaps more importantly, if you think about drawing near to God, what comes to mind? In our natural state, and honestly, this often characterizes Christians more than it should, we tend to think that we need to clean ourselves up if we're going to come to him. Do you feel like that? Do you look at yourself and think, okay, yes, I can draw near to God, but let me improve my quiet time and do a little bit better with prayer and maybe serve someone this week. Then I'll feel better about thinking I could draw near to God and relate to him and enjoy his presence. Brothers and sisters, I hate to admit it, but I fall into that way of thinking more often than I would like. And when I do, this is what I need to hear, and this is what you need to hear as well. There is absolutely nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. Knowing him fully as the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, means that he has done all that is necessary to make us acceptable to him. He has put his Son on the cross for our sins, Our guilt is transferred to Jesus. Our guilt and our shame are removed, and God's righteousness is given to us as a gift so that by his blood we are made fully acceptable to him by faith. This is what we need to see, and we need to be humbled by it. Now, how does that happen? It happens, as with all Christian growth, as the word is ministered by the power of the Spirit to those who will come under that word. This means it happens in a setting like the one we're in right now. And also it happens each morning when you get up and open your Bible to read, if you will do so with the eyes of faith. It happens when you encourage each other with the truth of Scripture in response to the ups and downs of life. It happens when we see with our eyes the ordinances God has given to the church, baptism like we saw this morning and Lord's Supper like we participated in last week. So this is one action step. Avail yourself of God's appointed means of grace so that you will know him fully and recognize him for who he is. And again, know that you're dependent in this. We need that spirit. We need that spirit of wisdom and of grace, like Zechariah says, a spirit of supplication and of grace to be poured out out on us as we look on him whom we have pierced and are led to that heart of brokenness, thanksgiving, and worship. So that is action action step one. Avail yourself of God's appointed means of grace as you seek prayerfully the steps of sanctification. Secondly, take practical steps of sanctification. Now, friends, this is Paul's end game here. This is where we get to that checklist that sometimes we're too quick to skip to, but we do need to get there. 
Again, all knowledge, all theology must move us if it's going to be worth anything. Knowledge without love is useless. Theology without growth in godliness is worth less than nothing. This is Paul's prayer and my prayer for you, and this is the exhortation you need to hear, that you must know experientially God's power for your sanctification. The same power, Paul reminds us, that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in heaven is the exact same power that is at work in you to make sure that you, Christ's church, the special precious possession of God himself, his power in Christ is at work in you to make sure that you are glorified just as he wants and commands you to be. You are able to, because of this, you are able to and you must take practical steps of sanctification. Now, in terms of what those practical steps might look like, I want us to look for a moment at Ephesians chapter 4, a page or two to the right. In chapter 4, as Paul leads up to those really convicting admonitions I mentioned earlier, like the need to be generous and to speak graciously and to be truthful, in the lead up to those specific admonitions, Paul describes for the church how God has supplied the church for the hard work of walking worthy of the calling with which we are called. Paul writes in verses 11 to 13, And he himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now imagine, as I read that and you read along, that you caught some similarities with what we have seen in chapter 1. That's because Paul is pretty repetitive with this emphasis in Ephesians on the need for the church to grow and to do so first by coming to the full knowledge of God. But what I want you to catch here for now is a key aspect of the practical priority of the church if we're going to respond faithfully and prayerfully, as Paul does, to the glories of the church. That key aspect is this, that God gives as a gift to his church each member of the church. This includes, like the list here, the church's leaders. But it also includes, as in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, each individual church member. Paul writes there, But now God has appointed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. I asked last time if you believe that the church is glorious in the ways Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1. And the question is, do you live like you believe it? Here's just one practical encouragement, one practical step of sanctification. Ask yourself and answer this question. What can you do to show your love for the body in which God has placed you? Now, as some of you know, I preached this sermon already once, and for those of you who don't know, now you know. I preached it back when I was in California last month, and uh, my wife thought that I went a little soft on them <laughs> when I got to this area, and really part of the reason is I don't know them as well as I know you, and so I'm going to speak a little bit more clearly and directly to you on this point. I don't know how many of you guys have realized in recent months, uh, oftentimes when Kyle gets up here to... Uh, lead us in the last hymn before the sermon, 
that he says there is no children's church today, and the reason for that is nobody has signed up to serve on that particular Sunday. And with something like 350 people here every Sunday, that is a little astonishing. So I think this is one area in which we could improve our efforts. And really, that's just a, it's just a, you know, and let me tell you a little story. <laughs> so maybe you can appreciate the way I'm doing this. Uh, and I know some of you have probably heard this story before. It's from a nearby church here in Fort Worth. And one Sunday morning, it was time for the sermon. And nobody gets up. And this goes on for a minute or two before finally someone gets up and comes to the pulpit and says, if you're wondering where the pastor is, he's in serving your children because none of you signed up. So I'm not recreating that moment here, but I am giving you this admonition. And this applies not just to children's ministry, although Rod is always, and, and Marcus and, and Brenda are always going to be eager to receive your applications to serve. This applies to everything. And I'm reminded, uh, Dan, of I think it was Matt Steele uh, in his membership interview, when he was asked, how do you think you might serve this church? He said, I want to clean toilets. And his point there was, whatever needs to be done, I want to do. Doesn't matter how menial a thing it is, the church has many needs, the church has many members, and each of us is equipped in a way that can meet many of those needs. And so my encouragement, my admonition to you, and this is a matter of what I see you doing, and this would be the longtime people here, what I've seen you do the 12 years I've been here, do more and more and don't grow weary in doing good. For those of you, the half of you that have come since early 2020, we thank God that you're here, and the encouragement is jump in and be a fruitful member of Calvary Bible Church, obeying these admonitions in the whole book of Ephesians, being knitted to this body in love and reflecting the glory of Christ in this as he builds his church. Now, let me say, I do understand that it can be hard to get plugged in and to find a place to serve right away. So if you're just new here and trying to find your way, don't take that as an offense. Take it as an encouragement. And let me encourage you, the theological realities we are seeing in Ephesians 1 should make it just about impossible for you to stay on the sidelines or to stay in the stands, so to speak, as a spectator. Because God has made you a part of the body of Christ, a part of Calvary Bible Church, you now get to be a blessing. And that applies first and foremost as we have opportunity to the members of the body of believers. That's where we're instructed first to give our time and attention. And then be a blessing to everyone as you have opportunity, just as God originally intended us to be. Now, just as much as this pertains to ways that you might serve this body, like in children's ministry, it also applies to every aspect of what you do. Every aspect of what you do, including your calling, if you're called at home, if you're called to the workplace, everything you do, including your personal walk with the Lord, is an application of this. You bless this body by being here on the Lord's Day morning. You bless one another each time you participate in a Bible study. You bless this body by texting or calling a brother or sister one day during the week. You bless this body by providing each other with a meal or by helping each other with projects around the house. You bless each other. Do you realize this, that you bless this body by every step you take personally in your own sanctification? Because you're a member of this body, if you get up earlier one day this week to spend more time in the Word and prayer, if you make extra effort to put a sin to death, confessing that sin to a brother or sister and asking them to hold you accountable, 
you are actually strengthening this body as you strengthen by grace through faith one of its members, even just as you engage in your own personal sanctification. And remember, again, you are not alone as you do this. You are not left to your own power to accomplish these things. You, in this body of which you are a part, have the very power that raised Christ and seated him in heaven. That same power is at work in you to accomplish your conformity to Christ, to the glory of God. Friends, brothers and sisters, the church is glorious. So what? As Paul has modeled for us and as his words have taught us, the glory of the church should move us. The glory of the local church should move us, even as it moved Paul, to live from a heart of constant thankfulness. And the glory of the church should move us to pray, even as it moved Paul. It should move us to pray for and to pursue the knowledge of God in the gospel of Christ. And it should move us to strive in specific ways like those unfolded in all the rest of Ephesians. The glory of the church should move us to prayerfully seek practical ways to grow in sanctification so that we will become more fully and more visibly what we are in Christ. Please pray with me that the Lord would do this work in Calvary Bible Church. Father, we need your help. And Lord, this text is a clear testimony to the fact that we have your help. We thank you, Father, for the ways that you have graciously, and especially today, through the testimonies and the waters of baptism, Father, through this text, you have displayed gloriously your power through the one whom we have pierced. And Father, you have given us in a number of ways to look on him. We ask, Father, as Paul asked, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom, of grace, of supplication. Father, that we would respond in faith. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done in Calvary Bible Church. We thank you for the work that you have done in each individual member here with us. We thank you, Father, for the work that you have done in salvation and continue to do. Would you, Father, send your spirit to seal these truths, the truths of this text, to our hearts, Father, that we would become more and more, that our, that our knowledge, that our theology would go somewhere, that we would become more and more what you have purposed us to be, Father, the one new creation, the new people with a whole heart to love you and to look like your son and to bless, as a result, to bless the entire world through him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.